Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. This week, we're finding out what it's like to recruit for the events industry. What are companies looking for in a candidate? And what are candidates looking for in a company? Core Recruitment joined me in the studio to offer a behind-the-scenes look. A mix of everything at the moment. Candidates just want that culture, like you said, like massively culture. And, you know, have they got a good leader? And once you've found the best talent, how do you retain it? Well, we've got a panel to answer just that from Event Lab 2018. It's about little changes and about making little differences to people's lives. And whatever we can do to make that step a little bit easier for them, we're absolutely there. But first, the end of change. What does a cashless society mean for the event sector? Not what it says on the tin. Is there a risk of food fraud in the events industry? And more music in the East End. Plans for a major new venue have been unveiled. Ed Poland is away this week, so Sam Allen has stepped into the role of host, and she's joined by Charlotte Gentry and Richard Groves for the News Digest. Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening, Sam. Hi, Sam. Hi, guys. You're in the hot seat. Uh, I am in the hot seat Driving the show. Good evening, all our podcast listeners. It's Sam Allen here, normally on the other side of the studio. But today, I'm stepping into the seat, and it's a lovely warm one, of Mr. Ed Poland, as he's got another engagement. So, um, hopefully... We will have a, a great News Digest. I've got two of the veterans of the News Digest posse, um, Charlotte from Pure Events. Hi, and Hi, lovely. And Richard from the Smart Group. Good afternoon. We have a packed agenda of news today, so I'm not sure how we're going to get through all of this. But let's start from the beginning as I am one of these people, um, Exhibition News this week have been uh, talking about the benefits of going cashless. We're all doing this from a consumer point of view, uh, reduce queues, quicker transaction times. But actually, this is now moving into the events world, more so on the B2C side. But actually, I'm interested from you guys to understand how a cashless society will affect the event industry, the events world on whole, as a whole. Well, on the consumer side, mm-hmm. um, uh, we are aware that it's going to happen. You know, at the moment, it's something like 20% cash, 80% contactless over our bars and, and, and when people are buying stuff. And that was about four years ago, completely the other way around. And so it's happened in the last two, three years. Wow. It's swung around that far. And we are just very aware that within probably 18 months, we could probably go completely cashless and no one would notice. And actually, people would prefer it. Because it is everywhere. I'm used to using folding money, and I went into a tiny little coffee shop um, on my way through to Greenwich the other day, and I offered my three pounds for my coffee. And she said, "Oh no, we're contactless because we don't need to keep any money on site. We don't want to keep a till. It's all going through." And I, I always thought people didn't want to do cashless because it took too much money on the as a service charge. But no, it will. It'll be with us in the next two years, totally. Is there a downside to it? What are you seeing from the corporate events world? It's kind of, it's a bit different for us, I guess, in that um, there's the occasion where we might do a big festival for a client, and in which case they're spending their own money, but a lot of the time we're funding the, and and we're being invoiced in, in large bulks of 
um, tranches of money. So not a lot of cash is actually sort of being handed over anyway. A lot of our um, delegates aren't actually having to spend their money because the companies are paying for everything anyway. So um, it's a, I guess it's a little different for us. But I suppose it's more involved with the with the travel side of, of things. You know, we do quite a lot of overseas incentives and stuff. And BA, as an example, you can't actually spend any money on BA um, in, t- in, in the form of cash now. They only take credit card payments. So, um, you know, that's been quite an interesting transition. Um, and, you know, just talking about sort of industry events, really, you know, when you very few of my team tend to walk around with wadges of cash in their, in their, in their, in their wallets anymore and going to an industry event if they're asked to pay for an auction or something or you know buy raffle tickets no one's really ever got any money to, to do that so I think perhaps the industry does need to to, to change a little and, and think of other ways in which to raise money for for charities which doesn't involve people carrying around cash oh, sorry. oh sorry Richard I wanted to know in terms of managing data and monitoring data when you've got a cashless world now this is a very sophisticated way of watching how your crowd is spending, where they're spending, what they're doing. And are we translating that yet into the world of our our, our world in it, events? It's world? getting there. It's in, in the um, the major spectator spectator sports mm-hmm. arena. We we were talking to the um, the Open Golf, and again they're eighty twenty, so eighty percent contactless and twenty percent cash. And what that does is it drives through your tills, um, the what is being sold per minute per till area across the whole golf course and that means and it's, it's called push and pull it means you can push stock into those areas that need it and you can pull it from others that aren't being used and so you can actually live and, and very virally put new equipment and new people into the areas where it's required so the whole thing is tied up with the operational aspect as well as not having cash on site as well as um, staff not handling cash which is always a sort of a, a difficult area and it um, operationally it, it's just a dream Wow. It must make um, a huge difference, I would imagine, to um, businesses like yourself, yourselves, Richard, where you know, from a catering perspective, actually not having to handle um, a lot of a lot of cash behind bars for drinks and stuff, and managing queues and um, dealing with the process operationally, it must actually make things a, a significantly easier, I would imagine, mm. having a cashless scenario. It does because you can't really. You, you, I'm sure there are ways around it, but you can't stuff a fiver in your pocket as a member of staff running someone else's bar. You know, it all has to go through the till before you. There'll just the be drink. other things that they're stuffing in their pockets. <laughs> Speaking of which, she says, moving into some sort of seamless <laughs> segue, link. Yeah. Very cheap segue. Um, coming slightly outside of the sector, but uh, definitely inside Richard's world. How do you know when you pick up a bottle of extra virgin olive oil from the supermarket shelf, how confident are you that it's all that it seems? Now, this came from the BBC website and there was a big investigation into certain types of foods that's claiming its own heritage, i.e. extra virgin olive oil, when in fact it's not from Italy at all. Is this something that is going to affect us? We're a big, big set of foodies in our world have you seen this as a problem yet or is this something we should consider and what should we be thinking about as event planners? It's A lot of it has come from the descriptive terms people like to put on things. So if you're writing a menu and you say it's um, netted down chicken from a farm in Yorkshire dressed with rapeseed oil from Norfolk um, and the salad leaves come from a man's farm in Warwickshire, then it's got to come from those places. But people were writing that sort of um, detail without really having the whole supply system sorted out. And so because people expected to see it. And so they thought, oh, we'll just scatter these adjectives over everywhere and this sourcing procurement thing. 
Whereas what you're supposed to do, and if you're doing it properly like we do, is you say, okay, we will go to that farm or we will go to that supplier, make sure they've got enough that they can supply us all the way through the summer, and therefore it is valid that we are mentioning that particular source. Back to the olive oil. Funnily enough, I was looking at the shelves in Sainsbury's the other day thinking, oh, extra virgin olive oil will be from one country. It'll be either Italian or Spanish or Greek or whatever it is. But the most popular brands, and most of them you see on the shelves in supermarkets, are all from very um, diverse and, and lots of European countries. Mm. So you get Greek, Italian, Spanish, um, Romanian olive oils all in the same bottle. They might all be extra virgin, so they might all be the first pressing, and it might be cold pressing before it's actually heated and more oil is extracted from the olive. But there's no guarantee from what country it's in. You have to really look carefully at the label. Do your clients want to see more transparency? I mean, we talk about this in terms of um, allergies and what have you. We know that's a law. But in terms of the supply chain and the, you know where this is all coming from, are you seeing that, Charlotte? Um, not necessarily. I mean, we do a lot of very um, unique, tailor-made, bespoke sort of client marketing events, um, which, and a lot of them are food and drink um, orientated because it's a... It's a, you know, in terms of a um, an engaging, unique experience, gastronomy seems to be you know a very, very popular choice. And at that stage, yes, when you've got sommeliers and when you've got um, uh, you know food critiques really heavily looking at different products, then yes, it becomes very applicable. But I think in um, you know when it comes to big conferencing or incentives or um, and if you're in that particular location and you're being served. Spanish olive oil and you're in Italy or something that would obviously be quite weird um but it doesn't really affect us on a on a day-to-day basis I would say but it is quite it's quite an interesting topic because in the same applies to low-fat foods and you know a lot of products which have got low-fat foods on them um Mm -hmm. or are you know less than two percent fat or whatever they've they've put so many other products into that product that actually that product ends up by being worse for you than actually if you went full fat in the first place so I think the same kind of applies within the food industry as a as a whole um that you often don't know what you're actually buying and eating Mm. and you're being missold something from a marketing perspective and working with end clients sometimes you know, the food sourcing and, and sustainability is very important. And I might do a conference for you, Charlotte, and and I would say, you know, this is going to be in a particular area of the country and I think we should reflect that part of the country, mm. um, you know, food from Wales or Ireland, wherever it happens to be. Um, and and that's our job then to source that from the right people to make sure we've got the right quality. Mm. It goes through our thresholds to make sure it's safe and, and comes to you. Um, that drizzling of the oil of oil, I think is slightly, unless you're saying it's from somewhere particular, then I, I think it's that's a slight... Um, blind that people don't necessarily need to get too hung up on. I think that um, technology is going crazy and we'll also support this reading the article a little bit further. Um, There's a blockchain-based system created by Oracle Um, IBM do one, I'm sure other technology providers also do this to underpin the traceability which will also help this process. So technology will support it but at the moment we're not going to have too much of a sleepless night if your Pickpool de Pinay isn't from the exact right place in Pickpool. I think probably quite a lot of people that we have at our events um, have had a couple of glasses of wine and probably wouldn't know whether it came from New Zealand, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it, it comes down to passing off, I think. If you, if you, if you say it's champagne, it's got to be champagne. Yeah. Correct. If you yeah. say it's sparkling wine, it doesn't yeah. matter yeah. so much. And for the three connoisseurs of that lovely French bubbly stuff... We would be very cross if it wasn't yes, from well, exactly. that particular region. Yeah. Um, moving from the region of Champagne <laughs> to the region of the east end of London. <laughs> These links are coming through <laughs> thick and fast, aren't they? 
There is some proposed designs for a new arena in the East End of London. The MSG Sphere London is a planned venue that's going to hold up to 21,500 people, about 17,500 seated. It will be not that far from the O2. It's been uh, endorsed by the former culture secretary and the mayor. Um, I'm asking you, we talk about this a lot and we've talked about this over the last six or seven months around capacity in London, how this affects the UK in terms of events, how this affects us as corporate and association event planners. Should this be a good thing for the industry? This is going to be a music venue. This is MSG, which is Madison Square Garden Company. Have we got too much going on in the East End with the expansion of Heathrow? Is this a challenge for us? What's the opinion, team? Charlotte? Um, I think it's great to have another venue um, in any in any form or, or capacity. Um, I think there's a lot of focus on the East End, largely because there's more space um, in, in that direction, I would imagine. Um, I personally would like to see a bit more in the south or the west of London mm-hmm. um, because there aren't really any big venues. Even even medium-sized venues, there are very few in, in West London. Mm. And we have quite a lot of clients that would prefer to go west or they live west um, post being out out at an event. So trying to we're constantly being forced to... Proposed venues in the East End because there isn't really there aren't that many options otherwise. Um, so I think it's I think it's great. Um, I think there aren't that many big venues that are quite unique in the way that they feel. Um, the only one I can sort of think of off the top of my head um, is the Roundhouse, mm-hmm. which I think is very very um, special in Camden. I guess it depends on how this feels on the inside. Mm. Is it just going to be you know, is there going to be something that's really dynamic and unique about it? If they're going to throw great concerts in there, how's it going to feel? How's Can you? How's it going to engage people? What's going to be different about it? Or is it just going to be another blank space with... Is, lots, is it a big box? Yeah, is it a big box? Yeah, yeah. we need to well, find Well, it's a that. big round ball yeah. by the looks of things. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> in terms of infrastructure, just sort of lastly, sort of th- looking at this... Can the East End cope? I mean, what's going to happen if this this venue's there? Well, you've got something going on at the O2. We've got association conferences. XL, I've just come back from XL this evening, and uh, it's a jam-packed um, exhibition centre. Um, thousands and thousands of people. You've got Canary Wharf. You've got people mm. moving. Can and do we have the capacity? Well, very good question. Um, you know, when they, when it's chucking out time at the O2 and you get 40,000 people coming up from a take that concert, will they be able to cope on the Jubilee line two stops up from these people coming out of your 21,000 square foot of 21 yeah. capacity? It's, a, it's, a it's going question. to be very hard unless they stagger it. So maybe start looking a little bit west again is, mm. is something that we're going to The only to one that's coming up in the west really is Battersea Park, and mm. that's not anything like that size. But then the East End was sort of the time, the, the land that time forgot, and there's yeah. lots and lots of but space then even, that they're reclaiming. Even with the Bassy Park scenario, there's always a challenge there, and it's a mindset. People are like, oh, it's, you know, the transport links aren't as good. I mean, the Jubilee line is legendary. Mm. You know, you can get oh, in yeah, and out. Yeah. It's very, very easy to get to, even though Bassy Park is literally only just on the other side of Sloan Square mm. from the district line. There's this mental block we find sometimes with our clients that they just don't want to head over the other side of the river somehow. Mm. Mm. I think the new tube, the new tube stations will, will help mm. around Battersea. And we have Crossrail as well, which yeah. is going to yeah. bring in a, yeah, you know, exactly. a big sort of shift yeah. in people's mindsets in terms of how far things yeah, yeah, are yeah. as well. But they don't think you're right. They don't think of Southwest as a, no. as a music venue site. 
um, it's just there's nowhere nowhere for them to go. So yeah. maybe our, you know, the likes of Visit London and uh, and Visit Britain need to sort of start thinking about promoting a bit more geographically as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Events are good in the west as well as the east. Yeah, absolutely. But all venues, are extra venue space, extra people coming into the city, into the country. It's a good thing. Is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And music is growing. People, musicians make their money on touring at the moment, so you need lots of places mm. for them to play. And we want, you know, we want those great musicians coming mm, to our country absolutely. because that's also, you know, that's a really big, a big thing. I, I read on the news this week that the Louvre in Paris have had a huge intake um, in extra new visitors because Beyonce did a music video there. Mm. So if we can start encouraging those sort of stars to be coming here mm. very regularly, it can only be a good thing for us and for the event industry as well. Um, lady and gentlemen, <laughs> believe it or not, we are coming towards the end. I'd love to know what's happening in your worlds in the next couple of weeks. Anything exciting? Oh, lots of exciting stuff. Well, actually, lots of exciting stuff that we have been doing. We went to Madeira for our, for a company trip a couple of weeks ago, oh, which fabulous. was absolutely amazing. And we went whale watching and dolphin watching and um, had an amazing time as a team. So that was pretty exceptional. Um, and yeah, we've got some really exciting events coming up actually over the next um, in the next month or so. And um, we've had a really busy, super busy year so far. So. The crazy mayhem um, that seems to be going on in Westminster, which is right on our doorstep in actual fact and is making getting to work a bit of a challenge at the moment, um, doesn't appear necessarily to be affecting whether people want to book events with us this year. Well, let's so keep far. our fingers crossed. Good luck yeah. and congratulations on the first quarter of the year. Richard, yeah, busy we, we, couple we, of weeks we ahead. Are, we're planning hard for the summer at the moment, so we've got lots of weddings and we've got um, Illuminate, which is our new venue in the Science Museum, opened about two weeks ago, so that's now off and running and working really well. Planning for a new venue magazine opening in September on Greenwich Peninsula, which is 3,000 um, capacity. And, um, of course, Christmas looms. Even though it's nine months away, it's we're oh. selling hard for Christmas. We, we well, as soon as you know. Oh, my God, Richard, we're, I can't believe you said you've that. You've left us all. We all <laughs> have a massive high there, Richard, and now we're on a massive low. Um, I just wanted to put a big, um, big shout-out for people who don't know that it's Global Meetings Industry Day next week, 4th of April. Oh. Um, it's a US-based initiative, but it is something that's happening over here in the UK. Go and check it out in meetingsmeansbusiness.com. Hmm. And it's a celebration of everything we do in, in this world. So that's quite exciting. But until a fortnight's time, I wish our podcast listeners a good fortnight. And I wish you two both a good fortnight too. And we'll see, and see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you very Thanks, much. Sam. Thanks, Sam. Take care. <laughs> Up next, I'm joined by Pippa Bradley-Dixon, the head of food service, and Lucia Raru, the head of venues and events recruitment, from Core Recruitment, who are giving me an insight into recruiting in the events world. So today I am joined by Pippa and Lucia. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hi! (laughs) So you guys are from core recruitment i guess just for the for the listeners what what is core recruitment core recruitment is a hospitality recruitment agency um we specialize um in obviously hospitality over 12 sectors with 35 consultants and we're national and international so leadership and professional development is our big focus this month on event lab so we really wanted to chat to you guys to find out about the uh, what goes on behind the curtain of recruitment what what is going on in that world um, now, I understand you each sort of recruit for slightly different areas of the events industry. Could you guys give me a little overview of the kind of different areas that you recruit for? 
I, Lucia, head up the venues and events recruitment. Um, so we look after predominantly um, venues um, across the UK and international, but also its suppliers. So any, everything from event caterers, event production companies, event agencies, um, and other event suppliers such as AV, sound, lighting, etc. My role, I work kind of, sometimes Lucia will work on more of the venue side and I'll be looking at kind of the caterers that are inside that venue, predominantly within corporate catering, but sometimes crosses over into like that commercial side as well. There, are there any common things that you see your, candi- your, like, your candidates kind of all sort of looking for when you get people looking for your help? Yeah, sure. I mean, in events, is you do get, um, probably get quite a lot of um, the guys looking after looking after the same things really um, I mean to be honest it's also the basics which everyone is looking for uh, but mostly um, progression career ladder type of companies that do offer that and also um, I think it's more of um, the company culture that we've seen a massive um, growing and massive okay. interest in apart from just uh, you know how established is the company I mean that's obviously very very important but at the same time it, it is about you know the team about you know company ethos what is important what is the vision of the company um, I think everyone is looking so much more ahead now than just for the time being um, so I think it's more about the career aspect rather than just the job for now if that makes sense yeah 100% like longevity is like so important in what they want so are they going to join somewhere and then you know is it a big enough company that they can grow in um but also like life balance work-life balance obviously I do a corporate sector which can tend to be Monday to Friday as well (laughs) (laughs) so everyone wants to work in my sector um but um yeah not just that you know there's it's just a mix of everything at the moment candidates just want that culture like you said like massively culture and you know have they got someone a good leader sometimes it's not always about the company and like the company uh itself and what they stand for but necessarily your like line manager yeah because you have to it's like a mentor I think you're not and also you're not joining a company you're you're looking after someone you're you're aspiring to be someone that should be in that company and sometimes that's most of the reasons why they move because they want to aspire to work to someone great and become that great yeah I mean do you think there are any there any quirks to candidates that you kind of only see in events recruitment compared to say I don't know other areas define quirks (laughs) there's a lot of quirks out there but I think, um, obviously, because the um, events industry is so broad and also it's so fluid, it changes. It has such a fast turnover as well because there's there's so much competition out there and candidates, I don't think they've ever moved as fast as they are now. Um, so I do see the events industry like a bubble. It 100% is. And I feel like candidates want to make the most of that. So they do want to move around, not just because they get bored. I just feel like they really want, there's so much out there that they want to do. Um, but in terms of um, candidate quirks, I think the most important thing is um, creativity, I think um, a lot of companies, um, I'm, I'm talking about the event catering, but also the event management side, just in the entire event planning management. I think it's so important to have different ideas, especially outside the box, because um, people do become stagnant. They do become very much, you know, linear. Um, so it's about, you know, who's more different, who is um, who's providing something that's outside of the norm. Um, and I think that's generally speaking now, you know, it, it is all about what's fresh, what's not. Mm, um, let's, trends. you know, exactly. It is about trends yeah. and it is about um, just bringing something to the table that um, no one else can. And whoever can do that, they have a massive advantage of getting a good job. 
it's the same for me. It's very much food trend focus as well. Mm-hmm. Who can kind of bring that? Um, especially when you're looking at caterers within um, a venue or within an establishment, whether it be commercial, whether it be corporate. Um, you know, within the corporate side, you're competing with the likes of the high street, and it's just so competitive. So it has to be someone who's like, you know, innovative. Yeah, extremely innovative. I think in- innovative. Innovative. Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess just look. At, so I guess look at the companies now. Are you seeing any trends in terms of the, the, the sorts of candidates the companies are looking for? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, well, apart from well, apart from the usual, you know, good, high skilled um, background, I think um, companies in my line of work um, will never fall off good, extremely salespeople. Um, so I think sales is definitely a job that it's always going to be in high demand. It's a role that every company can benefit from, but it's also it's quite tricky to find a really good salesperson that's, you know, again, not just coming in to pick up the phone, but it's about, you know, developing the business, looking at the, um, again, the business plan, not just now, but two, three years from now. And I think, again, people focus so much more on the future now that they need to be strategic. They need to be efficient in terms of how they sell the business. Um, So I think sales is um, a massive thing that uh, my sector particularly looks for in candidates, just because it's always helpful for someone to have that background mm. mine's mid-level management it's like good mid-level people that can eventually be a gm that can grow into that can grow role. in in a business you know that that really struggles because they're looking at that level of candidate that sees venue events and and kind of corporate as a career and sometimes people kind of fall into events or hospitality mm. in general you know so it's about building that up and making it seem like it's actually a career path that people can take is there much movement between other industries into the events or out of events into other industries? That's interesting um, that you say that. That is because we're actually talking about that earlier in terms of that question. I think Pippa has some really, really good insights, especially in the industry. Um, well, you said that earlier, so I hope you do. Well, it's interesting because I went for a chat um, on a Brexit, actually. It was a Brexit conference and it was about kind of the skills gap um, that we kind of have within this sector. And it was quite interesting to to talk and, and listen to um, Kate, who is um, part of UK Hospitality. And she was kind of saying how uh, now we've got that kind of skills in here to 2021. Everything's all good. Um, but when it gets after that time, there's going to be an element of we need to re-educate these kind of people that are coming out of school to think that hospitality, you could be running, you could be a GM of a business and, you know, and you can be on a high salary by doing that rather than you have to be a doctor or whatnot otherwise there's going to be a huge skills gap especially kind of 18 to 21 year olds well we also had a chat about earlier is that um i think it's about the how contract catering is becoming a little bit more um flexible in terms of other people's backgrounds so they don't necessarily hire square for a square anymore um they actually tend to think outside the box and actually think of someone that doesn't necessarily have the contract catering experience but they have the commerciality they have the financial background they have again the innovative approach (laughs) to a business i don't think i'm gonna get that word right Hotel service people moving into corporate is good. Okay. And a commercial ve- venue that want to move into corporate because they've got the commerciality side massively can move into corporate. I think events, again, it's a little bit tricky because um, I don't know if you know this, guys, but obviously event planning is fourth most stressful job in the world. Um, so it, I don't Recruiting's think... first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, recruiting is super easy. No, it's not. Um, I think with events, it's just so 
it, it is quite specific and it is about if you have those meticulous skills or you don't. And for example, someone that has, you know, we tend to get lots of candidates that, you know, I want to be an event manager because it's so much fun and it's, um, you get to do so much fun stuff. Yes, you do. But it's also a very stressful job. There's a lot of people that you need to keep happy, but also there is um, a complete chaos that you need to manage throughout the day. So um, I think you need a very strong set of skills in terms of being extremely organized, having a great communication um, approach to clients, but also to the team that you work with. Um, so um, in terms of um, people being in the role, um, my sector is quite limited. I need those skills to consider them for roles um, and I can't be flexible um, with, with it. I have to make sure that they fit in the business and they deliver and they are obviously um, specialised in, in the actual experience rather than, um, you know, try this candidate. They don't have event experience, but hey, they are a great person. You know, it's, it's just not... their mum's wedding three Unfortunately, years ago. as much as open-minded I want some clients to be, um, I also totally understand them. They have a brief and they have a very... Um, busy event calendar where obviously it brings in a hell of a lot of money and they need the right person to look after their clients so um, it needs to be experience for me is a must we can't be flexible with their cross crossing over with their transitional experience if that makes sense a lot of people go in you know they try for two months and they're like i can't do it anymore and they want to go back into the a corporate role where they were you know planning an event for like 10 people mm. for meetings every day so it is it, you know it is it is quite tricky calm down sandwich lunches are hard work <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> try plan a thousand people event and let's see. Well, I guess as a, as a final question, have you had any recruitment nightmares? Oh, God. We can name many. <laughs> I mean, we can name and shame all day. <laughs> no, we can't. Actually, it's not that many. Um, we've been extremely lucky. We do work with some amazing clients. We have great relationships with candidates who eventually turn into clients, which is a perk of, um, you know, providing a really good uh, professional service. Um, but we've, um, we've introduced the candidate um, to a company um, and the process of them from, you know, being interviewed and getting into the company was fairly quick because the client was on a deadline and they wanted to get this person in the business as soon as possible um, and we were quite wary we did you know really suggest to them look they need a few more stages they need to do some sort of presentations to for you to understand what they're about uh, we did warn them about that but they were like no, no no we love them let's get them on board the candidate was like well look it seems right and I'm not working at the moment you know I'm gonna go for it um, anyway so it was for an event caterer um, and then it turns out the candidate who's a pretty senior position in the business um, they um, refused to do any of the tastings because they don't like their food <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, come on. This is literally a disaster, right? It's a criti pretty critical skill. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, up until then, they absolutely loved each other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, certainly keen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I guess just as a, a last tip, are there any things that you see candidates perhaps stumble on that you would you'd have any advice for? Um, I mean, do you know what? In my um, in my industry, um, I always think attitude is the most important thing. Um, honestly, I think is huge. And as long as you have a huge passion for what you do, I think that can just literally get you anywhere because, you know, you are who you love, what you love. And if that comes across, I think clients see that and they probably more a key leaning towards you rather than anyone else. So I think that's a huge plus. So don't be grumpy, be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, well, it's good advice to end on, I think. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Attitude. Just be positive. Positive vibes all the time. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us, guys. Well, thanks for having oh, us. It was a pleasure. Now, once you've recruited the best people into your company, how do you keep them there? It's time to look back to Event Lab 2018 
for the highlights from our panel on retaining and nurturing talent in events. Hosted by regular guest of the News Digest, Martin Fullard, the editor of Conference News. I'm joined by two panellists who I'll let introduce themselves, if you don't mind. Hi, I'm Natalie. I work for the ITV Experiences team. I've done so now for almost five years. Um, the ITV Experiences team work across the business to basically pull off different um, t mid to large scale types of events from anything to star studded red carpet commercial events, um, all colleague events to international um, events out in Cannes, Vegas, LA. So we're very busy. Um, and I'm Gillian Camille. I'm the operations director for Olympia London. Um, we are a large-scale event space which has everything from a conference center up to 15,000 square meter exhibition halls. I think one of, the, uh, one of the key areas that when I first got the brief for this, uh, for this panel months ago, you read the title and your, your mind is kind of driven towards youth. You know, we think nurturing talent but we think automatically young talents. What are we doing when it comes to making sure we're retaining talent across the board, not just young event professionals, but those with more experience? I think from our point of view, it's absolutely essential that we keep people who have experience and that we mix in people who are new and talented. Talent doesn't stop when you're 25 or when you're 30. And to make sure that people are invested in is essential and to make sure that people feel as if they want to stay there and that they want to give everything they've got. You know, we're a very fast-paced industry, as we all know. Uh, things change every day. And education, is we're seeing in all of our events, that education is absolutely key in every industry. And that's the same for us. We have to keep making sure that people at every level are captured and that they are incentivized to, to be involved in everything that's going on. I think it's, it's really key as well that, you know, you categorise young talent, you categorise older generation, the millennial kind of culture, but everybody is an individual as well, so it's um, having workplace environments and companies recognising that they need to flex and adapt to the individual needs of the talent as well. So when it comes to the talent requirements for running events, how has it kind of evolved and do you find that there are differences uh, between younger event professionals and those with more experience? I think so. I think to flip it on its head, it's more of a what their expectation really is from the employer. Um, so what we're finding more and more is that the younger kind of generations and millennial culture they are, are wanting a, a lot more um, autonomy, they're wanting a lot more responsibility and they're really, really wanting to shape their and flourish their careers. Whereas the older generation, from our point of view, want security and they want to know that they are respected and that they are trusted, so not in a dissimilar way, just a, in a, a different way of sort of having it, having it said to them. That our youngsters, I say youngsters, millennials, um, want flexibility in their, in their times that they come to work. Actually, my older workforce don't. They have other responsibilities outside of work, which may dictate the way that we work with them. Um, so, so for us, it's, it's about making sure that everybody gets exactly what they need, but while the, putting the company first as well. It's really important that meeting everybody's needs and meeting what everybody wants is great, but you still have to make sure that your business is able to run. I think that's important and being able to communicate that without seeming churlish in any way is very important. Yeah. You see, I'm sure a lot of people here would be curious as to how both your organisations uh, implement schemes and programmes to ensure that talent across the board through all age groups is nurtured, 
respected and how everyone is uh, prescribed to give their best. So maybe you could just take us through what your individual organisations actually do. Yeah, okay, I'll start. So we are a values-led organisation, so we recruit through a values-led programme, meaning that you fit the right culture of the business. For us, it's incredibly important that you're with the right type of person to work at Olympia London and that you work with our clients in the correct way. We need to be able to talk to everybody at every level in the same way. Nobody, because your, your job title doesn't make you special at Olympia. You know, we, we're 150 people, we're a family. We know everything about each other. Um, we do an awful lot of professional training. So uh, each department, we, we essentially cover five departments. And each department has a very, very strict professional training regime, which may be annual or it may be what's coming up. You know, it might be tax lessons for the accountants or it might be um, lessons for the, for the guys on the traffic about, about moving traffic cones. But outside that, we also run a very um, a company-wide soft skills program. That's about giving people resilience. It's about um, negotiating with people. And that doesn't matter if you're the MD or if there's somebody in a lorry shouting at you. You still need to know how to handle yourself. It's about reading body language. It's about um, having difficult conversations. And what we're finding more and more, and I think this is, and I'm sure Natalie will agree with me here, job security is massive. You know, mental health is very much at the forefront of all of our mind. And we do a lot of work with that. And we do a lot of work um, trying to make people feel as if that they have security, they have everything they need. And one of the things that we're doing is bringing in um, some financial workshops because what we found and, and research will show, has shown that job security and financial pressures are two things that lead to stress. And stress either leads to presenteeism or absenteeism. Absenteeism obviously being when you're not in the workplace. And presenteeism being when you are in the workplace but you're not actually doing anything. I've not heard that one before, but that's a good one. I've not heard that one. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, you know, we, we, I was at a conference a few weeks ago which covered quite a lot of it, and it's been really interesting when you actually look around and you think what everybody's got going on in their own world and what can I do to help them. You know, we're not their parents, no. but anything we can do to give them self-confidence or give them resilience in any way um, can only make them better at their jobs. So that's, that's what we do. So it comes back to the, the individualism. Um, yes. Everybody... It, needs to be sort of allowed the autonomy to kind of take on their own journey as well. Um, at ITV, that's very much so we kind of hold the same values as what you've just um, outlined. And what's really, really important is that everyone recognises that the, the people are what drive the organisation. Uh, I want to kind of uh, just bring well-being into this a little bit because you know, again, it's not just about nurturing someone's actual career prescription and their job description and what they're supposed to do day to day in the office or wherever, but their mental health, their physical well-being, surely that's just as important. We know that, of, you know, I think we were discussing it earlier, event profs is one third. of the third most stressful job in the world, yeah. or in the UK, um, whatever, <laughs> probably in the world. Uh, so, I mean, what are you guys doing to, to kind of help your, your team's well-being and physical health? Okay, so for us, um, 18 months ago, we signed up something called the London Healthy Workplace Charter. It's run by the, by the GLA, and your local authority can get you involved in it. Um, what it's done is it's given us a framework around which we can place some, <laughs> I guess, courses for people who are interested in, in helping people that might have um, 
suffer from mental health issues. We have trained all our line managers in how to spot anxiety and how to spot stress, and we did that alongside Mind. So they'll come in for free and work with you. We did the same thing. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's fantastic. Um, I think it's really important that you don't do one course and then you walk away. One course for, for two hours does not make you an expert in this. And it's also, I mean, we've also done things that we've sent. We're, we're very lucky. We've got a team of fire officers on site, and our fire officers double as first aiders. Anyone that's ever been to Olympia will know that our, our fire team are legendary. They are just the best. But they've all gone off and trained to be mental health um, first aiders. So if we do have something, um, if you do have something going on personally, and you want someone to talk to, and you don't want that to be your line manager, then actually having somebody else is really equals. We do a lot of work with our um, local communities. So we're very involved in the local community. We take a charity every year and we give our staff time to go and work for those charities to help them feel as if they're giving back. Um, this last year we did Maggie's, which is a cancer charity and I'm sure cancer's touched many of us and, and us particularly at work. And um, this year it's the Barons Court project, which is a homeless project. And we're in a fantastic position where at the end of an event, if we have mattresses or sofas or paint or food then we're able to donate it there um, or we can donate it to them and they can use it or we can donate it to them and they can sell it and they can use money we go into schools and we help kids write their cvs and all of that doesn't you actually get more from that as a as a mentor or as the person that's going into the school than you do the other way we, we give people sort of a day and a half two days a year to be able to do that and if you want to do something specific then it's at line managers request it's very much very discretionary um, and it's important to us that people feel as if we're not just that they're not just here to do a job they're, they're part of it you know we're going on an interesting journey in the next 10 years um, where we've just put in some planning for a 700 million pound redevelopment um, and it's obviously on everyone's what's happening how's it going to work and what we're trying to do is make sure that everybody knows that they're part of the community that's going on that journey and we think that will help them as well as us. We absolutely are completely encouraged to do anything to do with mental um, health and, and wellness. We've got something that launched publicly across the network, but also internally called the Daily Mile, which actually, so publicly, it encourages school children to, during uh, their lunch breaks, to walk a mile. It's not someone from Birmingham trying to say <laughs> the Daily Mail. It's not, no. Just check. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, so that then went um, through us actually internally, which was great. Um, we had one full day where the whole of the, all the colleagues, you know, internationally in Leeds, Manchester and London all did that together. Mm. Well, we like to say all, a majority <laughs> of. Majority took part. <laughs> we all, uh, yeah. So we also have a wellbeing committee, which is made up of um, members of staff from every department. It's something that was started by the staff for the staff. Mm. Um, we have a well-being calendar now, so every month is dedicated to something else. So we did March for March, where oh, everyone wow. was encouraged to do 10,000 steps. And I don't know about your teams, but we are an incredibly competitive group of people. <laughs> so we put them into teams, and we competed against each other. And did obviously operations won, because we work harder than anybody else. Um, but it, it was fantastic, because it got everyone talking. I think that was the key behind it. Um, we do recipes, we have a great internet site um, where our marketing team support us in putting things out about great food. You know, we do a vegan, we do a vegan food festival that's on this weekend actually and we're getting recipes from that that we can put out to our staff. You know, it's about little changes and mm. about making little differences to people's lives and whatever we can do to make that step a little bit easier for them, 
we're absolutely there to, to support. I mean, what, what we're talking about here doesn't need to cost very much at all, does Not it? This all. is very much just programmes put in place by respective organisations. Yeah. So, I mean, what advice can you give everyone in the room to take this idea back to their, their organisations? Well, how, how, how would we... I think it's about just giving people the permission isn't it? It's not um, being forceful with what they need to do for their mental well-being or it's giving them per permission to do whatever they need to do. So I just wanted to quickly revisit one point that we touched on earlier about you know the differing generations and, and the millennials and those with, with more experience. Uh, how easy is it to kind of try to find something that does work organisation-wide or do you really have to actually come up with pockets of different programmes to deal with different generations. Is that, is that an issue you face, do you think? It's, I don't think I've faced it generationally. I think I've faced it from a departmental position. So we certainly have people who don't want to be in a room with other departments, um, and that's not because we're silo working in awkward. It's just because actually they don't feel that each other understand their roles. So one of the things we brought in was a day in the life where we get our MD to go and work on the gates um, and we get our gate guys to go into the finance meetings so that everybody has a respect for each other. Um, with, with regards to generational thing, I think everybody just wants to be invested in and nobody wants to be embarrassed. I don't think it matters who you are or how old you are. Nobody wants to be put in an awkward <coughs> position particularly. Um, we were a little bit more forceful than you at the, than ITV. We actually do make people do things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because at the end, you know, we must be doing it okay. 64% of our staff have been there over 10 years. So Good we're, do, we're doing something right. Um, and I think 4% I think have been there for over 30 years. I've done 18, which... It you know. sounds like there's a massive padlock on the door and none of you can I escape. Know. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Just so one big, massive it, sleep out. It, it, basically, well, we're always there. As you'll know, if you're in events, you're always at work, aren't you? Yeah. Um, it's, we bring people in. We've got a great... Um, every year for the past 15 years, we've had a student that we've taken from Leeds or Sheffield. Um, doing an event management degree, which is where an awful lot of our staff have come from. Um, they come in every year and then by the time they graduate, we find a way to bring them back. And now about 50% of our ex-students have been through the doors and probably 30% of them are still there in, in various guises. So we still see an awful lot of those people as well. Uh, and be there out in industry, be that they're working for other organisers, but they're in our halls all the time. And it's, it's, it's a family. You don't want to leave family. Um, I think on the generational thing, it's, it, I think it's more the, the difference of people and personalities and what, what I've observed that's been really good in terms of development um, has been teaching everyone that everybody functions differently. We do this thing called the colours exercise, if anyone's heard of it, um, where it sort of categorises you, categorizes you into a different sort of colour in your day-to-day -day and then it, you know, if you're a little bit stressed you might turn a little bit into a bit of a chameleon and into another, com uh, another colour. As a journalist I'd be just the colour red all the time. <laughs> You've done the colour yeah, exercise. I'd be red every day. Well it's interesting because some people in their day-to-day -day actually just function as one colour and then suddenly go completely the opposite. So it's good to equip everybody with that sort of knowledge that, you know, you you have to be a bit careful when you're interacting with people. Mm. And I think interaction in teams, you need to teach people about that because otherwise you're not going to get the best out of the mixture of people. And it is important that there are so many personality types when, when you're looking at teams. Maybe you'd each like to summarise, uh, maybe in a very quick couple of sentences, what people can take away today to kind of really go home and make their teams feel a little bit more loved. 
well-being. <laughs> well-being, well-being, well-being. Every day of the week. Make them feel loved. Make them feel important. Make them feel as if they're part of the journey. Um, you'll get more out of them, is the truth. They'll work harder for you. They're loyal. They become massive ambassadors for your brand. And all you can ever ask for out in the workplace is that when people look at your team, they think that they're great. Um, and that they know that they're great as well, because that'll make them better at their jobs. How on earth do I top that? <laughs> say the same thing. <laughs> I just say the same thing, but it's not one size fits all. Everybody is an individual, and you need to cater for their, their different needs. Um, and then, yeah, they will turn into the biggest brand ambassador that you know and love. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, could I ask you please a round of applause for our panellists? Thank, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, well done. Very good. As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to the News Digest or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at highspace.com. Thank you very much for listening.